Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is where we're going to begin this morning. As you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, in fourth grade, I was bullied by Jeff. He was a jerk. I mean, I'm sure he's a much nicer guy now, but uh, he, was, he was really a jerk back then. And so, you know, I went to my dad and I asked my dad for advice on, on how to deal with this bully. Uh, but honestly, what I really wanted from my dad is I wanted my dad to go beat Jeff up. And, you know, for whatever reason, my dad declined that uh, option to go beat Jeff up. So, you know, this week I was thinking about that story and I thought, you know, how could I have dealt with things differently? So I went, you know, back to the source of wisdom, uh, not my dad, because that wasn't helpful. So I went back to Google and I Googled and I said, okay, uh, how do you deal with a bully? And I I came across uh, one article that was apparently was written by adults with no input from kids. And this was the advice, right? It said, um, how to handle a bully. Try a sassy comeback line like, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's great. Or, why are you talking to me? Yeah, that's good. Hey, that's not funny. I thought, okay, I told Corby this, and he said, yeah, they should retitle that article, How to Attract More Bullying, right? (laughs) So I was thinking back on that incident. I thought, you know, really... What should have happened is I could have taken Jeff. I could have taken him. I mean, he was, he was skinny. I wasn't skinny, right, back then or now. Um, but, you know, I, like, I, could, I could have taken Jeff. Uh, what I realized was he, he kind of ruled in fourth grade by intimidation because some days he would be my friend, and then other days he would be a bully to me, and he had this, uh, had really mastered a fourth grade level of psychological warfare. And, um, you know, what I realized is bullies are usually um, much bigger and stronger in the eyes of the victim than they actually are in reality. And maybe you can see where I'm going with this illustration if you've recently read the book of Revelation. Uh, Satan is a bully. He's really, he's really the ultimate bully. He harasses and he accuses and he slanders and he deceives and he lies to us and tries to trick us to think that God is not greater and stronger and bigger and better and more powerful by far than he is. And what he wants to do is he wants to undermine God's plan and he wants to destroy God's people. And we can't really fight against him unless we understand who he is and how he battles. Or for that matter, if we don't even believe that he exists. There's a most recent George Barnapole discovered that 40% of evangelical Christians don't even think that Satan is a real being. So if you don't believe he exists, you're not going to battle well against him at all. Uh, he is real, and he is, he's strong, and he's smart, he's clever, he's powerful, but he is he's nothing compared to our infinite God. But he's not, there really is no point of comparison. And so what Revelation 12 does for us is it gives us an opportunity to study our adversary and to learn about him so that we can battle him more effectively. Now, in the context, Revelation chapter 12, we are in the middle of the tribulation period. So the rapture has occurred. The church has has been taken up to be with the Lord. Antichrist made a covenant with Israel. He won their trust by restoring worship in Jerusalem for them. But then at the midpoint of the tribulation period, he breaks that covenant. We're at that midpoint of the tribulation period where the, the, the judgments upon the earth are becoming more and more and more intense. And remember those judgments on the earth during that last seven-year period, Daniel's 70th period of seven, seals, trumpets, and bowls, they are designed to do two things, bring judgment upon the earth and also bring Israel and the Gentile nations to repentance for those who will turn, right? It's a dividing line. It's a, 
It's a point in time. And so the conflict is escalating, and as it escalates, Satan doubles down, and he digs in deeper, and he makes the fight even more intense. Now, practically then, uh, what do we, we want to take away by the end of this message? It's this. This is the big idea for the morning. Our enemy is determined to fight, but he's destined for defeat. Okay? Our enemy is determined to fight, but he's destined for defeat. So what I want us to remember this morning is that he's real, that he fights, but he's ultimately going to lose, and he's already lost, and we know that he's lost at the cross, and the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus proves that God is much more powerful. He, he, he's, he's defanged the lion, so to speak, and so what I want us to remember is he is real, he does fight, we need to be wise in how we fight him, but ultimately he will be defeated. So let's begin Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 12 and reading together in verse 1. John writes, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns, and on his head, heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, she, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nursed for 1,260 days. So, first point is this. Our enemy despises God's people, and he wants to destroy God's people, and he wants to undermine God's plan. And what you have in Revelation chapter 12, if, you can, if I can create a visual image for you, is in a sense it's like skipping a rock across human history. Right? The, 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 the waters of human history are, are, are spread in front of us, and what we have is a couple of just very select and spread out moments that give us kind of the arc of the conflict between God and Satan. And you'll notice from the very beginning, it says a great sign appeared in heaven. In fact, there are two signs that appear in heaven uh, because they're signs. What John is telling us is uh, this is not a literal woman or a literal dragon, but they represent something literal, right? These are two signs. So first, what is the sign of the woman? The sign of the woman is Israel. We know that because remember, there are moments in Revelation where we're told, here's the meaning of this figure of speech. And then there are others where we're told, uh, no, this is an allusion to something in the Old Testament. This is a clear allusion back to book of Genesis chapter 37. Joseph had a dream. He had several dreams. And one of his dreams went like this. I had another dream. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me when he told his father and his brothers his father rebuked him, saying, what is this dream that you had? Will I, your mother, and your brothers really come and bow down to you? So when John uses this image, he is referring to ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel. Then a second sign appears, and it's a great red dragon. It's not literally a dragon, but we're told who the dragon is. If you look in chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that is, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, 
who deceives the whole world. No, there's no question in, in, in this passage, right? We read it and we see all of these images and all of these signs, and initially it can be a little bit confusing, but if we look to the Old Testament references, and if we look to the context immediately, we see that the woman is Israel, and the dragon is Satan, and then there's a third character that shows up, and he's not called a sign, because he is just a literal child. So notice, she was with child, she cried out, being in labor and in pain, about to give birth. Who is the child? Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nation's with a rod of iron. That's a reference to Psalm chapter 2. This is God's Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ. And notice he goes on. He says, He is to rule the nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God into his throne. So the rock is skipping. We have the birth and the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. Just like that. right? This broad sweep of Jesus' life and then we move to the second half of the tribulation and the Antichrist, the beast, Satan, begins to persecute the woman, right? So we're given this broad sweep to, to remind us that the conflict that happens during the tribulation period is just a part of a conflict that's been going on for all of human history, that Satan has been attempting to undermine God's plan and destroy God's people. So, Quick review, what is God's plan? Let's go back to Genesis chapter one. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every creature that moves on the ground. God made all of creation. He said, it is good, and I'm going to make as the pinnacle of my creation men and women who will rule and reign and represent me over all that I have made. That is God's plan, that God would establish his kingdom on earth. So when Jesus told us how to pray, he said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's God's plan. But almost immediately, Satan, the adversary, decided to disrupt God's plan and, 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 and try to undermine God's plan. And so he came into the garden where God was communing with Adam and Eve and walking with them daily and giving them their commission to rule and reign and subdue. And he came to Adam and Eve and he said to Eve, Eve, you know, you've got another option. You don't have to find your identity and your purpose in life in the kingdom of God and under his authority. You can have your own kingdom. You can establish your own identity. You can establish your own purpose. Does that sound familiar to the culture around you? That's always been his strategy. And so he established a, a counterfeit kingdom. And if you read the word of God, basically that's the storyline of two kingdoms in conflict for the hearts and minds and bodies of people. Which kingdom will people align themselves with? The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, or with the kingdom of God? and the kingdom of light? Where will they find their identity and their meaning and their purpose in life with Satan or with God, opposed to independently from God or with God? So the conflict began immediately. God stepped in also immediately, and he promised that Satan would be defeated and his kingdom would win. Genesis chapter three, verse 15. This is God speaking. He said, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent or Satan, and the woman, 
and between your seed or your offspring and her seed or her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What is God saying? God's saying your life will be a life of warfare. Your life will be a life of warfare. But in the end, the seed of woman or a descendant of woman, a, a man is going to conquer over the devil. That is, he will bruise you on the head. He's gonna crush your head. It's gonna be a fatal blow, Satan. You're gonna deal a blow to him as well, but it's gonna be a blow on the heel. It's gonna hurt, but he will recover. But there's gonna be conflict between you constantly, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And if you catch it here, this verse tells you right from the very beginning of God's word of the necessity of the incarnation. God had to become man because only God could defeat Satan. God had to become man. The ultimate seed of the woman will be Jesus. And he will crush Satan on the head. He will, he will destroy him ultimately. We're gonna to get to that at the end of the book of Revelation. But he would bruise Jesus on the heel, that is the crucifixion that ended in resurrection that he recovered from. But what Satan has been doing now throughout human history is he's been battling. There has been enmity. He has been trying to destroy the, the seed of woman, that is humanity in general, trying to pull humanity away from God and ultimately Israel in particular, the, the, the family through whom God would bring his Messiah. Uh, let me give you just a few illustrations of that. What's the first sin that happens after Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden? Remember? Cain killed Abel. Why? Because Abel was righteous. Abel was the righteous seed. So Satan goes after the descendant through whom his conqueror could come. Uh, second illustration Exodus chapter one, Pharaoh said to the midwives, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Let's, let's, let's wipe them out. Another illustration that we often uh, forget about, we overlook, Esther. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they, that is the Jews, be destroyed. This is Haman who was talking to Ahasuerus at the king and not telling him, uh, reminding him that it's actually the Jews that I want to destroy. And oh, by the way, also your wife is Jewish. He didn't tell him that little detail, right? So letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Or one illustration that you're probably most familiar with, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. He couldn't find out who exactly is that one child who was born in Bethlehem, so let's just kill them all. And maybe the illustration that you're most familiar with in our more modern history is the Holocaust. Right? Uh, the Nazis' so-called final solution to purify humanity is to kill every Jew. Why? Because we're told that it's a seed of woman who will destroy the serpent. And then Jacob's told it's actually going to come from Abraham and through Abraham through your son Judah and from your son Judah through the family of David. And so Satan went after the seed and he wasn't able to kill Jesus. So what does he do? He continues to persecute humanity generally, trying to pull us away from aligning ourselves to the kingdom of God and the Jews in particular so that God cannot fulfill 
his promises to people because Satan hates people. Satan wants to destroy your life. He wants to pull you away from the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he may try to do that through making your life an absolute train wreck and leading you into uh, immorality and incredibly self-destructive decisions, or he might do that through simply uh, allowing you to be a good person, absorbed by the culture around you, giving your life to things that don't last for eternity. And you need to be aware that your adversary wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. That's the first point. First, our enemy despises God's people. Second, our enemy is destined for defeat. Chapter 12, verse 7. It says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having, a, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So we are now at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And there's warfare going on in heaven. And because we don't see spiritual warfare, we forget that it's actually happening. So I want you to hold your place here in Revelation and turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Remember, we talked about this as we began our study, that you really can't understand the book of Revelation if you don't understand the book of Daniel. There's so much of Revelation is rooted in the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 10, and let's read in verse 10. It says, then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I've now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words." But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Verse 20. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But now I shall return to fight against the prince of Persia, so I am going forth. And behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. What's going on here? Prince of Greece and the Prince of Persia, these are demonic forces. These are are demons who apparently have assigned themselves to nations, and there's a hierarchy of battle. Uh, Michael and Gabriel are among the chief of God's angels in 
this, this army that belongs to God. So when you see the phrase even Lord of Sabaoth, it means the Lord who commands the armies. Who are his armies? There, there are angelic forces that are doing battle even as we speak against demonic forces. And there are demonic forces that are influencing uh, rulers and kingdoms and individuals. And there are angelic forces that are fighting against them. And there comes a moment, a point in time, at the midpoint of the tribulation period, when Michael and the other archangels and the, the forces that are aligned angelically, spiritually with God, cast out Satan and all of his forces from heaven. So what does that mean? Well, that's midpoint of tribulation. They're cast out. They no longer have access to God. Well, apparently, right now, they do have access to the throne room of God. They don't have relationship with God because they are fallen, but they have access to God. We see a reference to that in Job chapter one. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, the accuser, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So the sons of God is a phrase in the Old Testament for angelic forces. And so as those angels come and present themselves before God, Satan, who is also an angel, a fallen angel, comes and presents himself before God. Why? Well, apparently for accountability. Satan, what are you up to? Because you don't get to go wherever you want and do whatever you want to do. Satan, what have you been up to? What are you doing? So apparently what happens now at the midpoint of the tribulation period is the fallen angels no longer have access. Right? They're cast out of heaven and they're sent to the earth, and the result is that things on earth get worse and worse and worse. And John will say, woe to the earth, because now Satan knows that he has very little time left. So what does that mean maybe for us practically as we think about our adversary? I'm going to read to you a quote from Sun Tzu, The Art of War. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So what do we know about our enemy? I want you to turn back to Revelation chapter 12, and let's look at a couple of his uh, names or titles. Okay, the first is Satan. It's a Hebrew word. It's transliterated into the Greek, and it means uh, adversary or accuser. It's actually a legal term. There was an advocate and there was an accuser in the court of law, right? And Satan, as he comes into God's court, he functions as the accuser, right? He's the verse uh, chapter 12, verse 10. Notice what it says. Satan, uh, the accuser who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. He's the accuser. He's also called the devil, which means the slanderer. There's a really interesting scene in Zechariah chapter three, where again, the court is called into session. 
The sons of God come in and the adversary, the accuser, the devil, the slanderer also comes. And Joshua, the high priest, is in a vision and he's in front of God. And as he's standing before the throne of God, it's noticed that he's clothed in all kinds of dirty garments and Satan is hurling accusations against him. And what does God do? God says, let's put clean clothes on him. And let's bathe him. Let's make him holy. So right now what's happening in the throne room of God? Satan has not yet been cast down. He's, in, he's, he's there and he's, he's hurling accusations. He's making accusations. He's reminding of sin. Remember in the book of Job, we just referenced the court comes in and uh, God asks Job, what do you, where have you been? What have you been doing? Well, I'm roaming around. So well, God says, well, have you considered my servant uh, Job? He's loyal to my kingdom. And Job says, well, of course he's loyal to your kingdom. It's because all that you do is bless him. But if he has a trial, if he has a tribulation, he's gonna turn and curse you. God, I can drive a wedge between you and your people. So what's happening at this moment? Satan's hurling accusations. He's probably hurling accusations about you to God. But there's another person in the throne room of God. There's also an advocate. That's Jesus. He's your lawyer. And what is he saying? Forgiven. Cleansed. Pure. Mine. This one belongs to me. There's no accusation that can be hurled against you that can cause God to turn away from you, that can drive a wedge between you and God. What does Satan want to do? He wants to drive that wedge between you and God. When you sin, what is the temptation? I'm not worthy, and you pull back from your relationship with God. That's exactly what Satan wants. But what does God want? Because you are pure and holy in his sight, because you have the blood of Jesus Christ covering you, even when you have sinned, you can rush back into the presence of God and you can plead for mercy and grace because the the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ has removed your debt of sin. So there never needs to be a time when there's, there's distance between you and God. Even when you sin, you can come back into his presence. And so Jesus is there, he's pleading your case and he's saying, God, my father, that one belongs to me, forgiven, covered with my blood. And you battle from that place. You are safe. You are secure. You belong. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Can the enemy? No, not any other created thing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus your Lord. That's a fact. That's a fact. What does the adversary want to do? He wants to separate you from God, so you can't experience his power in your life. Notice he is also called here, uh, verse nine, the serpent of old, right? The dragon was thrown down, the, the serpent of old, the one who deceives the whole world. Jesus made reference to this title, verse eight, or verse 44 of chapter eight in John, he says, Satan, that is uh, the, the accuser, the adversary, he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. That's all that he can do. Now remember, this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees, to their face. And these were the most outwardly righteous people in that day. But it was self-righteousness. They were establishing their own kingdom defining their identity and their purpose apart from God's righteousness and his kingdom. And Jesus says, 
All that he does is lie. All that he does is deceive. What did he do in the garden with Eve? He didn't do anything miraculous or dramatic. He just planted seeds of doubt in her mind. Has God really said? Is God really good? What is God withholding from you? And he gave her even some little pieces of truth mixed with lies to deceive her so that she would think that she could find life outside of God and his kingdom. He is the father of lies. All that he does is lie. And anytime he speaks, it's a lie. And his tension is always to deceive. That's how he works in our life. And if that's the case, we need to know ourselves. What are the lies that you, in particular, are tempted to believe? Sometimes you don't even identify them as coming from the adversary because you just hear them so often in your mind, right? They're just the scripts that keep running. And they're so common, and you've heard them so often, that you think they actually belong to you, but they don't, right? These are the lies. Um, You're not worthy to go in the presence of God. Uh, This sin isn't really that big a deal. It won't really hurt God's heart. He can forgive me later afterwards. Um, I'm not qualified to serve him. I mean, there's there's a million things. There's a million lies. I can find life in Jesus, but I can also find life in this person, this career, this possession, whatever, right? I mean, sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll allow you to hold on to a little bit of truth and then mix it with a bit of a lie. So what do you need to do? You need to be really consciously aware, begin to think consciously, what are the lies that are running through my mind? I encourage people, literally get out a three-by-five card and write it down. As you begin to identify it, you begin to realize, okay, that's, that's not true, but I'm believing it. Write, write the lie down on the backside, Write truth from God's word that combats that. Put it in your pocket. Put it in your backpack. Put it in your purse. And begin to develop the habit of pulling out your sword. Every time you hear a lie, you pull out your sword. Read the lie again. Yep, that's the lie that I'm hearing. What is the truth? Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. Nothing can separate me. I go into the throne of grace that I may receive mercy and grace in time of need because I'm always welcomed into God's presence because Jesus, his son, covers me with his blood, right? I just, man, I'm just always on it. So pretty soon that sword just comes out so quickly and I don't believe the lies any longer. If his primary strategy is not to show up in a red suit with a tail, because you go, ah, that's the devil, right? But just little subtle lies that you've always kind of believed, you combat that with the truth. In other words, knowing God's word, meditating on God's word, memorizing God's word, this cannot be casual. This is your life. This is is warfare. And if your sword is rusty, it gets stuck. If you've got to borrow a sword from somebody else every time you need a sword, it's not going to work. You need to know it, study it, memorize it, meditate upon it. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Just love it, be absorbed in it, be be, be just deep, deep, deep in the word of God for the absolute rest of your life so that your mind thinks truth instead of thinking lies. So his primary method is deceit. What can't he do? Well, he can't do anything he wants to do. He can't go anywhere he wants to go. He has limits placed upon him in particular He cannot take away your option of choosing God. When you're under temptation, you feel like you don't have a choice, don't you? 
but you do. He deceives you to thinking you don't have a choice, but he can never take away your choice to align yourself with the kingdom of God every time you face the temptation. You always have that choice by the power of the Spirit. You are empowered to do that. You can. So what can we do in response? Verse 11 says, They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and because they did not love their life even when faced with death. Okay. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. They, were, they, they understood. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus has, has secured the victory. We win in the end. So our identity is absolutely secure, and they were deeply secure in their, 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 their identity and their belonging with the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? It was settled for them. They knew this truth, and they owned this truth. Right? They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, but also because of the word of their testimony, and they did not life, love their life even when faced with death. That is, uh, they, were, they were all in, 100% committed. You, you want to know how you give Satan a, a foothold in your life is that you hold little areas of your life back. But they were all in. They said, even, even if we have to go to death, we're going to still say, Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. He's, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. The kingdom of God is the only king that mat, kingdom that matters, and we're going to align ourselves in completely and entirely with his kingdom. And they didn't leave even a tiny little bit of their life as holding on and clinging it to them to, for themselves. Instead, even to the point of death, they were willing to remain faithful to the kingdom of God. Consequently, they're untouchable. If your life is 100% aligned with the kingdom of God, you're untouchable. If you leave a little area of your life that you're going to hold on to for yourself, Satan will drive a wedge between you and God right at that spot. Right at that spot. And so maybe this morning what the Spirit is wanting to say to you is, let's do some examination. Is there something that you are holding back? Is there an area of your life Maybe it is a relationship that you're saying, no, that's mine. Or a career, you say, that's mine. That's mine. Or something about your thought life or your physical life, you say, that's mine. That you haven't said, I surrender this all to you. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, the way that he overcame the temptation was truth, the word of God. He had Deuteronomy memorized. That's not your application point for today. Um, so he had the word of God memorized. The second is, uh, he held nothing back. You know, even if I need to go hungry for 40 days, I choose God and his kingdom. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, cause this cup to pass from me. Can you accomplish your will some other way than me going to the cross and experiencing, experiencing this separation? Yet not my will, but yours be done. I hold nothing back. So even if it means going hungry for 40 days, I'm all in. Even if it means going to a cross, I'm all in. You have my life. All of my life. You want to know how you experience power over your adversary? You give Jesus absolutely everything. And you hold nothing back. Third point, our enemy is determined to fight. He's destined to lose. He will be thrown down and he will be conquered and he will be thrown into the lake of fire. But he is determined to fight until the very bitter end. Verse 13 when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the, two, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. 
And the serpent poured water like poured water like a river out of his mouth and after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So let me, put, let me package this a little bit for us. Verse 6, chapter 12, it says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So what do we have at the beginning of chapter 12? It's this broad sweep of the cosmic conflict between Satan and God. And the seed of the woman emerges. He's born, he's, he ascends, he's enthroned. And then we move to the very middle point of the tribulation where things are gonna get really, really dicey. And then we're told how this actually happens. Satan is thrown out. And then we come back to this midpoint of the tribulation period where the woman, that is ethnic Israel, flees into the wilderness. And she's protected by God for how long? Verse 6 says 1,260 days. Verse 14, she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. So where we are now is we're at the very midpoint of the tribulation period, and we're going to begin looking at the, the second half of the tribulation period. That is a time, times, and half a time. That is three and a half years, or 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, because the tribulation period lasts for seven years, Daniel's 70th period of seven years. We're at that very midpoint. And the second half of the tribulation period is where things get really, really oppressive and intense for the nation of Israel. Because at this point, they've turned. They've been betrayed by the Antichrist, and they begin to turn to God, and so the Antichrist persecutes them, and God protects them. This is what's called in the Old Testament, the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30. Alas, for that, great, for that day is great, and there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, if you want to go back and read uh, that this week. Matthew 24, it's called the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus fills in some of these details, particularly about that second half of the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's distress that lasts for three and a half years. Because remember, our background is the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. He, that is the Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High, and he will wear down the saints of the highest one, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That is, they will be persecuted. But we're told in the book of Revelation that at least a subset, a remnant of God's people who've turned to him will be guarded and protected. In fact, we're told in verse 14, it says, two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place. So, two wings of the great eagle. There it is. The United States of America. Right, because our seal has an eagle on it, right? So that's what some commentators think. Well, that's gotta be the United States of America because we have an eagle in our seal. And so we come in and, and rescue, right? And we come in and rescue not with helicopters, but with fixed wing because it's wings of an eagle, not helicopters. So how we're gonna rescue, that's not it, sorry. Uh, you know, it's fun to read yourself back into the Word of God, but this is not America. This is God. It's not America. 
Okay? So again, it's an Old Testament illusion. We've got the Exodus plagues and, and, and deliverance all throughout the book of Revelation. What does God say? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God rescued them, and how did he rescue them? He rescued them with the plagues and then through the water. Through the water. So what does it say? The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. What's the water like a river? Well, that's a pretty common Old Testament metaphor also. Isaiah chapter eight. Now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, that is, or even, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. What is he talking about? The waters are foreign armies that come in. And how is God going to rescue Israel? We don't know exactly, but how did he rescue Israel when the Egyptians were chasing after? He actually used the earth, right? The waters of the Red Sea parted, and then the waters of the Red Sea came down on the Egyptian army. So how is it described here? It says, the serpent poured water like a river, that is, chased after the Jewish people with foreign armies, animated by the spirit of Satan, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and drank the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So exactly what is that going to look like? We don't know. We don't know. But it seems that what he does is there's something natural that God happens to cause in the natural world that swallows up these foreign armies so that God protects a remnant of his people, Israel, but not all of them. Verse 17 says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went off to make war with the rest of her children, that is, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there's a portion that are protected. Maybe that's the 144,000 with the seal on their head. But then there are more who end up giving their lives. Remember the, the thousands of martyrs who are under the altar and they're crying out for justice because they held nothing back. But Satan won't quit. Knowing that he has a short time. And I promise you, he studied this book. He knows the story. But he is the definition of a fool. He can't learn. He can't grow. He can't change. He can only become more destructive. And so he battles against God's people. Even knowing the end of the story, he fights. And so men and women, we have to fight. There is a, a a false assumption that sometimes I think people grab a hold of as they begin to trust Christ and they think, now that I've trusted Christ, it will all get easy. Now that you've trusted Christ, game on. Okay. So, how do we apply this? Um, let me give you a couple of uh, just really practical ideas. Uh, but first, a story. Behind our house, there's, a, there's kind of a ditch, and sometimes that ditch is filled with water, and so we, we get all kinds of critters. We get, um, we've had bobcats, uh, had coyotes in our backyard uh, just a couple weeks ago, 
Um, we get lots of snakes come up through our backyard, but the absolute worst is raccoons. And you go, oh no, raccoons are so cute. They're not. They're you know they're just they're they're, they're probably demonic because um, they look so cute, right? But they're they're just absolutely evil. And they literally like they they've stolen things off our back porch and they've. They get into the trash and they tear it all up. And you know, every once in a while, I'll go onto the back porch, I'll flip the light on, and one of them's like standing at the glass door, <laughs> like this, just like, ah, all right. So, so I have a trap. I have a trap. And I have trapped many a raccoon. The first one I trapped, though, you know, the kids went out the next morning, they're like, Taz, oh, raccoon. And they're, they're all excited to see raccoon. And so they, they went out to, to see the raccoon. And the raccoon goes, <laughs> right? And they just, oh, they freaked out. Oh, my gosh. So they said, don't touch the raccoon, right? He's as good as dead, he's in the cage. Dad, you're going to kill him? I go, oh, no, I won't kill him. I'll go, I'll go set him free somewhere. <laughs> but don't get near his cage. Because even though he's destined for something, he's got a lot of fight left in him. And so is your adversary. So I leave you with a couple of uh, really important and relevant verses 1 Peter chapter 8, be of sober spirit beyond the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is all that he does. He's just always looking. He's always watching. He's always studying. And he's looked at human nature for, for millennia now. And he's trying to find your vulnerabilities. That is the, the little things in your life that you're holding back and saying, that's mine. So first word of exhortation is, remember, we're on the winning team. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And Jesus will return, and he's, he's going to crush the devil underneath our feet. It's, it is determined. So we, we, we really labor in battle from a place of extreme confidence. We know the end of the battle. But be alert. Be aware. Pay attention. This is what uh, Jesus encouraged his three disciples when they went with him to pray in the garden. It's the same word. He said, stay awake. Pay attention. You are in a battle every single moment of every day. And Satan will tempt you to drop your guard. So be of sober spirit, be on the alert. You are in a battle, but you're on the winning side. James 4, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, James Actually, we're going to study James in the spring, so that'll be fun. But James, the book, opens up chapter 1, talking about being double-minded or double-souled. That is, you're, you're trying to keep a little bit of your life to yourself. So he says, you want to know how you have victory and power over your enemy is you draw near to God. You submit to him. You give all of your life to him. All of your life. All of your life. All of your life. So as we close, I want us to just take a few moments before the Lord and ask the Lord just to do some, some, some deep probing and see, is there any part of our lives that we haven't given to him? Second, this week, I want you to begin to think very consciously, what are the scripts that are running through your mind that maybe Satan has planted there that are not true? And what are the truths that need to combat those lies? Let's go before the Lord. Father, you see all things, you know all things, and we give you access, even in this moment, to, to probe deeply into our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would courageously acknowledge even the smallest areas that we have not submitted to you. 
And I pray, Father, that even this week we would experience victory over our adversary by the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Pray, Father, that you give us insight to discern the, the scripts that are running through our minds that are not true, that are deceitful. And give us a hunger for your word as a weapon to destroy the works of the devil and to see God's kingdom implanted deeply in our hearts and our minds and in the lives of the people around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.